First readings from Genesis uh, chapter 3. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat from the fruit trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, from your eyes, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What's this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until the ground till you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Second reading is from Romans chapter 5, page there is on the screen, 1605, I'll just give you a minute to find that. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, 
and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to reflect on your word, we come with empty hands, knowing that in ourselves we deserve nothing from you. But we come knowing that you are the good and gracious king who longs to feed your people. And so we ask that you'd feed us now. By your spirit, open our minds and our hearts and our ears to receive your word and be fed by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've never done this before. We're going to start with a trivia question. Does anyone know... What is the world's largest canvas painting? No, okay. The Guinness World Record is held by this work. Uh, This is a work-in-progress shot. It was done by the artist Sasha Jaffrey during a COVID lockdown in 2020. I don't know what your lockdown project was. This was his. Uh, Here is the finished work. In 2022, it was purchased for $62 million. 
by a cryptocurrency magnate. The artist gave half the proceeds to charity. The work is over 1,500 square metres in area, the size of two football fields. It was created in a huge hotel ballroom in Dubai. And the title of it, this is very handy, is The Journey of Humanity. And that's very convenient for us because in today's passage in Romans 5, we zoom right out to look at the big picture of the Bible in which we see the journey of humanity. What we're going to do this morning is walk around and explore that big picture that we have in Romans 5. And then we're going to zoom right in to see the difference that it makes in our messy lives today. So let's get into the journey of humanity according to the Bible. It starts with a verse in the middle of today's passage, chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul writes that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. This is big picture stuff, isn't it? The first thing we need to see here is that sin had a beginning. God made this world free of sin and evil. He made humans to be free from death and suffering. Sometimes we find ourselves saying, oh, it's natural to sin. But in an important sense, it's not natural. Sin is like a weed that invades your garden. It doesn't belong in this world. But sin entered this world through one man. This is a story that we read in Genesis 3. That one man is Adam. In the biblical story, he is the first human. He's not just first chronologically, but he also has like a head of the family role. Adam and Eve were placed by God in a situation of freedom and abundance. They were given just one boundary to respect, one command to obey. They chose to break that command crossed that boundary, and it had implications not just for them, but for all humanity. Imagine this. A football team are having an end-of-season party in somebody's basement. The beer is flowing freely, the party gets pretty rowdy, and a snowstorm comes up outside, so no one is able to leave this basement anytime soon. Along the ceiling of the basement runs a large PVC pipe. It starts just near the bathroom of the house and runs towards the outside of the house. And there's a sign on the pipe saying, do not drill holes in this pipe. As the party gets rowdier and rowdier, the people get sillier and sillier, the captain of the football team says, no little plastic sign is going to tell me what to do. He grabs an electric drill that happens to be lying around and drills a nice big hole in the sewer pipe. What's going to happen in this scenario? Everyone in that basement is going to get covered in effluent. The actions of one leader have consequences for that whole group. And it's like that with Adam's sin. It's not just that Adam sinned, so Adam dies, and then the next generation, the game resets, let's see what happens in the next round. No, when Adam sinned, he unleashed the power of sin and death spurting into the world. 
This isn't what God made humanity to be. But now we're all covered in that sludge of death and corruption. And so we all start behaving accordingly. Death was unleashed on humanity because of Adam's sin. And because we're covered in that sludge, we join in in that sin. Now, as modern Western-minded people, we like to think of ourselves as free agents. We like to see our lives as blank pages on which we can write any story we want. But that's really not actually how the world works, is it? It's really often the case that a decision by the head of a group impacts the group as a whole. If a parent decides to move their family from England to Australia, their kids will grow up Australian rather than English. If the owner of a business decides to pursue a new risky business strategy and it goes badly, the employees won't get a raise that year. If the captain of the cricket team wins the toss and decides to field, even though the pitch is ripe for batting, the whole team may lose the match. If a parent puts limits on his son's screen time and makes him do homework instead, the son may never get to become a professional gamer. <laughs> Sad but true. Now, Western culture protests against some of these cases. But other cultures in the world see this as exactly the way things are meant to be. Of course, the whole village is impacted by what the tribal leader decides. Of course, parents get dishonour because of bad decisions by their children, and so on and so on. We see in Romans 5 that Adam, the head of the human family, made a catastrophic choice that unleashed the destructive power of sin and death in the world. And every human being gets caught up in this. Do you ever get philosophical? Maybe some of you lie in bed at, week, at night thinking about questions like this. Is that animal, does that animal quack because it's a duck? Or is it a duck because it quacks? Am I a coffee drinker because I drink coffee? Or do I drink coffee because I am a coffee drinker? Is Anton a Swifty because he went to Taylor's concert? Or did he go to Taylor's concert because he is a Swifty? There's a bit of that going on in Romans 5. It's true enough to say every human is a sinner because they sin. But it's equally true to say every human sins because they are a sinner. That's the collective identity we receive from the fall of Adam. The witty Christian writer G.K. Chesterton famously said that original sin is the only Christian doctrine that is empirically verifiable. Australian theologian Michael Bird writes, the fact that human beings sin, transgress, break laws, violate rights and commit immoral deeds is self-evident to everyone. He writes, I have to confess that one of the things that amazed me as a parent was that I never had to teach my children how to lie. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. That's phase one of the journey of humanity. It's not pretty. But the journey is not over. In Acts 2, God gives an amazing gift. Humanity gets a reboot. Yeah. 
Now, Paul says in verse 14 that Adam was a pattern of the one to come, like an imprint or a prototype or a foreshadowing. What Paul means is that there is another head of the family figure who comes later. Another man whose decision will impact all who follow him. His name is Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, Paul almost trips over himself as he says, look, Jesus is kind of like Adam. Oh, but actually, he's the opposite of Adam. He's like Adam in the sense that the impact of what he does flows out to countless others. But he's unlike Adam because he behaves in the opposite way and achieves the opposite result. In verse 17 we read, If by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We see here that whereas Adam disobeyed God, Jesus obeyed perfectly. In Adam, we all get what we deserve. But in Jesus, we get a free gift. Verse 17 says that, thanks to Adam, death reigned over us. But thanks to Jesus, we get to reign in life. Verse 18 Adam brought condemnation, but Jesus brings justification. Verse 19, in Adam, the many were made sinners, but in Christ, the many are made righteous. Jesus has replayed the human story from the beginning, but this time with faithfulness and obedience all the way through. It's not just that Jesus went day by day without breaking any of God's laws. It's also that Jesus positively pursued all that God called him to do. And that was costly. In Adam's case, the cost of obeying God would have been missing out on the fruit of one tree. In Jesus' case, the cost of obeying God was dying on a cross. We could compare Adam in the Garden of Eden with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see Jesus faithfully and painfully sticking to God's plan. And because of his obedience, he's been raised up from death, vindicated and justified for us. Here's Michael Bird again. What humanity needs, strange as it sounds, is a new humanity. The human condition can only be healed by the extraction of the evil that has contaminated it and corrupted it. We need another human who can siphon away evil, suffer under its weight, and yet not succumb to its dark power. That human being, we learn from Paul, is the Lord Jesus. The one like Adam, the seed and son of Abraham who fulfills Israel's vocation and is Lord of the entire human race. In Jesus' life, obedience and death The children of Adam and Eve are redeemed, restored and renewed and may thereafter return to the paradise that God destined them to dwell in for all of eternity. Jesus is Adam 2.0. His people are humanity 2.0. 
This is God's free gift. You can be part of humanity 2.0 simply by pledging your allegiance to Jesus. This is all pretty big picture stuff, isn't it? It's pretty amazing news. But of course, as we sit here today, the journey of humanity is not yet over. Christ is risen and transformed and victorious already. But you and I are not yet risen, transformed or victorious. We await the final chapter of the journey. The final chapter when Jesus returns to make all things new. As Christians, we've already been set free from the condemnation of sin and death. But we still wait to be set free from the presence of sin and the experience of death. We live in anticipation of that final chapter of the journey. And so having looked at the big picture, we're now going to zoom in and see what Romans 5 has to say to us about life in the meantime. Life in the meantime is no walk in the park. As we wait for the final chapter, we still commit sins. We experience conflict and criticism. Relationships get strained or break altogether. We lose people we love. We get sick and we die. What can get us through this meantime without losing hope? Romans 5 shows us how two of the most basic human needs are provided for us. It shows us we are loved and it shows us that our future is secure. When tragedy strikes us, it can easily make us doubt God's love. When a medical diagnosis suddenly turns our plans for life upside down, when something we cherish or someone we love is suddenly taken away, it can feel like God's love has just suddenly evaporated. When we find ourselves in that kind of space, the first thing we need is space to feel our feelings and voice our questions to God. God, what are you doing? Where is your love? And then we need the pretty watertight point that is made in Romans 5. Have a look at verse 6 with me. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. That's someone who always does what is right. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. This is perhaps someone who's been very good to you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still sinners, when we were God's enemies, in fact, when we hadn't done anything good towards God, when we were not upright citizens, that's the point at which God sent Jesus to die for us. John Stott points out, the more the gift costs the giver, And the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. And here we have the most costly of gifts given to the most unworthy of recipients. 
How great is God's love? I've been searching this week for a quote that I remember hearing in a biblical counselling course years and years ago. It's one of those quotes that sticks in your mind. I couldn't find the exact source of it. But it's the story of a wise Christian whose friend has just gone through gut-wrenching tragedy. And he says to his friend, I don't know why God has let this thing happen. But I know that the God who sent his son to die for you can't have stopped loving you. There are times when it can be hard for us to perceive God's love. But verse 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit is at work pouring out God's love into our hearts. As we wait for the final chapter, we can know that we are loved. And secondly, we can know that our future is secure. The Bible is clear that on the final day of history, God will hold all people to account for the life they've lived. The dead will be raised and justice will be served. And this is good news, actually, that justice is coming. But it doesn't always feel like good news. Some Christians hear that phrase, Judgment Day, and immediately feel anxious. Some are so painfully aware of their own failures that a day of reckoning sparks a fear that is hard to hose down. But have a look at verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? For Christians, the verdict of Judgment Day has been brought forward into the present. It's a bit like getting early entry into uni, where the verdict of the HSC is pronounced in advance. We have now been justified, says Paul. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's pronouncement over you is already not guilty. This is despite all the sins that you know you've done, And despite all the sins that you don't even realize you've done. If God sent his son to die for you while you were still his enemy, then now you're part of his family. There is no way he's going to condemn you on the final day. You are justified today. And so if you're feeling insecure, can I ask, is it because part of you doesn't quite believe in justification by faith? Hear the good news again. Rub it into all the nooks and crannies of your soul. Stick it on your bathroom mirror. Make it your Google password. You are justified by Jesus' blood. So your future is secure. Okay, as we wrap up, I want to return to the topic of boasting. Last week at the end of chapter 3, we heard Paul ask, Where there is boasting? It is excluded. He said there, if justification is by faith, then no group of Christians can boast against other groups of Christians. There's no place for that. All of us fall short. All of us are saved by grace alone, no matter who you are. No place for boasting. 
But did you notice in chapter 5, Paul now speaks positively about boasting. Exactly the same word. As people whose future is secure, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. As God's beloved children, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 11. Boasting in the sense of puffing yourself up against others, that's excluded. But this is boasting in the sense of rejoicing and exulting and celebrating. The sense of, come and look at the wonderful thing I've been given. It's not a boasting that puts others down, but a boasting that invites others in. So here's a quick plug. Come to the Ripple Effect Workshop next Sunday as we sharpen our skills in this kind of gospel boasting. Speaking joyfully of what God has given us and inviting others to share it. There's actually a third mention of boasting in this section. It's it's hidden in the the NIV translation. In the Greek, it's the same word. In verse 3, which says, we even boast in our sufferings. As people who know God's love, who know that our future is secure, we can boast even amidst suffering. Not because the suffering is a good thing in itself, but because in suffering we get to exercise our perseverance muscles. And we know that perseverance will pay off in the end. If you're a Christian believer, you are part of humanity 2.0. You have a wonderful head of the family whose obedience and faithfulness brings you justification and life. You have the assurance of God's love and a secure future. And so let's rejoice. Let's celebrate. Let's boast in the Lord. Even amidst suffering. Amen.